So Katie and I uh, are big Taylor Swift fans. Uh, we've went through a couple. We went through a phase several years ago, probably like five years ago now, uh, where our nieces were really into it. And then we, whenever we were driving on long trips on the radio, we would just put the radio on scan and wait. You know, it goes to a, a station and stops for three seconds, goes to a station. And it was like almost every time you could find a station playing Taylor Swift. And so we would just let it scan and we just stop it at that station and listen to it. And I enjoy her music. Her talent is impressive. Uh, but when I compare myself to Taylor Swift, I feel kind of bad about myself, to be honest, because uh, she's exactly three years and three months younger than, than me. Uh, her birthday is on December 13th of 1989, and which means she's also five months younger than my little, sounds weird to call her my little sister. She's married and has four kids, but she's three months younger than, uh, oh, five months younger than my little sister. So if Taylor Swift and I were in high school together, when I was a senior, uh, she would have been a freshman, a grade below uh, my sister. And so just to put that in perspective, and during that time, she was already working on her first record, which she released in 2006, the year after I graduated. And when she was, that was when she was 16. And that album peaked at number five on the Billboard 200. I don't exactly know what that means, but a lot of people say it means something. So, uh, and then she had another album called Fearless, and this was released in 2008, and when she was 18. And that same year, she graduated high school while on tour uh, with that uh, with one of her other albums. And then in 2010, that album, Fearless, won four Grammys and Album of the Year. And when I think about what I was concerned about at that age, I was really focused on leveling up my character Darkhelm in a game called uh, Dark Ages of Camelot. So very nerdy. It's okay if you have no idea what that is. But basically think online role-playing game with other people online, fighting them and whatnot. So I'm leveling up my character while she's producing this album of the year and you know winning Grammys for it. And just here's some other stats on her. It would take like tw 10 minutes to give all the stuff on Wikipedia. So she's released 10 albums in multiple music genres. She started in country, but then she's gone all the way to you know pop and whatever, what's like mellow mood, I don't know all the names, but different genres. She's broken records, received awards. So she has 12 Grammy awards, including three for album of the year, tying for the most by an artist. She has an Emmy Award. She has 40 American Music Awards, the most won by an artist. 29 Billboard Music Awards, the most won by a woman. 101 Guinness World Records, 14 MTV Video Music Awards, including three Video of the Year wins, the most by an act. 12 Country Music Association Awards, including the Pinnacle Award. Eight Academy of Country Music Awards, two Brit Awards, Artist of the Decade, and Woman of the Decade. And you don't really need to understand what all that was. It just was to like overwhelm you with all the things she's done, <laughs> just part of it. But when I like look at that list, it's like, well, what have I done with my life? <laughs> what do I have to show for myself with all that stuff she's done? When I compare myself to Taylor Swift or other people or other pastors, it can be like, well, where do I have, how can I be confident about what I've done with my life? How can I be confident about, you know, if we could, like kind of have a life resume and, you know, you submit one for a job of like your work experience. But what if it was like just a life resume of like, this is the stuff I've done, you know, this is the stuff I've had, this is what people recognize me for. If I just take my uh, life resume, I don't feel very impressive compared to Taylor Swift. And I don't even need to compare to Taylor Swift. We can just think of like the, the script for life that we often have in our minds. So it goes something like this, graduate high school, go to college, get a job, get married, have kids, buy a house, save for retirement, advance in your career, and then retire. And all of it is make progress, 
grow, accomplish, achieve, succeed, have a better job, have more money, nicer car, bigger house, better vacations, better, bigger, more, is often our life script of how we think life is going to go. And it's sort of people will talk about it's up and to the right. You know, if you're making money, your money's down here and the graph is going up and to the right. You're increasing in your money. And so our career, our life resume should always be up and to the right. We're just increasing more, getting better and better and better. And our life resume just gets more impressive. But the question is, well, what if that's not happening for you? What if you don't have those things happening in your life? Come, when we compare to where we thought we'd be or where others expect us to be or where other people are, we can often be like, well, I fell, fall short. Especially if you look on Facebook, you're seeing everybody else's highlight reel of their life and thinking, well, my weekend was so boring. Like, I haven't gotten a promotion like that. This hasn't happened for me. And we can just feel like when we take our life resume and it's like, this is what I thought would happen. This is where people expected me. This is where I wanted to be. And yet I'm not there. And we might feel just less confident. Like, who am I? Like, what have I been doing? Am I wasting my life? And this series is very personal to me because uh, we called it Lessons on God's Love. And I had taken a sabbatical this summer. It was a little creature flying around me. I had taken a sabbatical and had these eight weeks. And during those eight weeks, uh, right before the sabbatical, I had finished um, writing in this journal. And it was a journal that I would keep. Basically, I have this one day a month where I go up to Lake Geneva, kind of get out of the Woodstock context, and I pray. And then I would write down what I felt like God was teaching me or what I was hearing from him. And I had filled it up, I think, probably in April. And so I decided on this sabbatical, like, um, it took seven years to fill it up. I was just going to go back through and read this and, like, highlight major things that have kind of, like, really stuck with me. And I thought, well, it'd be kind of cool since I just did this. Like, how would I do a series on, like, three of the lessons I felt like God had taught me about his love? And so this is a, a very personal message, these three and the prior two. And it's really, for all of us, like, it's very easy for me to say, God loves you. And that could hit you, like, I know, isn't it awesome? Or it could be like, yeah, sometimes. Or, yeah, but I know what love is like from previous relationships or my caregivers growing up like that's love means to me x y and z and so it might hit you as a very negative thing to hear that god loves you and you might be like now who cares or it might just be too vague to even know like what am i supposed to do with that and the reality is that we can know about god's love like as a fact but not know god's love like as an experience of something that uh, we're feeling in our lives in response to things that we do when we mess up or when we're doing well or whatever it is and so this series is about uh, about God's love, but also hoping that we would know God's love. And we've been covering three lessons that have helped me. And today is the last one, and we're going to be talking about our Christian resume. And often in our Christian resume of like, this is what I've done, this is what I've accomplished, this is where I've grown, this is where I've you know succeeded and what things I've achieved uh, in Jesus' name in my Christian life, uh, we might feel like, well, my growth has been super slow. I'm still struggling with that thing that five years ago I felt like God pointed out, like, this is something I want you to stop or I want you to start doing. And five years later, it's like we're still kind of going in fits and starts and not making much progress on it. And we're just taking a while to do the things that God wants to grow in us. And we just can't seem to get past this one thing. It's like, I can't get that down. This thing that I know I'm supposed to do, I can't get it down. Or this thing that I know I'm supposed to stop, like, I just can't seem to stop it. And we maybe even make New Year's resolutions or resolutions throughout the year of like, I did that thing again. God, I promise I'm not going to do it. If I look in some of my 
you know, journals in the past of like things where it's like, God, I did this again, but I cannot do it again. I promise, like, I'm not going to do it. Like making vows to God, or maybe at the beginning of the year, like this year is going to be different. But as we tend to fail, or our growth is slow, or we're just not making progress, what does God think of us when you know it's just us down here? Like, God, I know what you want. I know what you want me to do. I know what you don't want me to do. What does God think of us when we just keep doing the thing we're not supposed to do and we keep not doing the thing we're supposed to? Like, what does God think of us? What is, how does he treat us? How does he feel toward us? And so the question I want to give you this morning that I hope that we'll answer is, do you have to be growing for God to love you? Do you have to be growing for God to love you? Do you have to be growing for God to love you? And you would perhaps immediately answer, well, no, that's not how it works. And yet, we know about that. I know about God's love for me even when I don't grow. But we don't know it in our experience that when we are not growing, it's like, well, I know (laughs) that God still loves me. And yet, I'm not feeling it. Like, I feel like I'm far from him. Like, he doesn't like me as much that he's mad and upset with me. And so, do you have to be growing for God to love you? You have to be improving, getting better, making progress, doing more, becoming a better Christian. And what if you're stuck? And what if you've been stuck for a while, maybe a long time? And so what we're going to look at is the book of Philippians, mostly that that section we read at the beginning. But in this the Philippians, there's a theme of growth. And it starts off right away that Paul has this prayer. It's like, okay, I'm writing to you. And like, here's what comes to my mind when I think about you, Philippians. Philippians is just, you know, it's almost like you're saying Europeans or something like that, or Germans. It's like the Philippians were a group of people living in a city, and Paul's writing a letter to them, this guy who became a Jesus follower, and he's writing this letter to encourage them. Often they write letters because they've heard of something going on within the church, and then they write a letter to help the church. I mean, it's kind of like a sermon in a way of like, here's things going on, and like this I think will help you uh, in your spiritual journey. And so he starts off, basically, he, first he says, I'm praying for you, verses 3 through 11 of Philippians chapter 1. And he starts with, why am I praying for you? So let's just read verses 3 through 8. So that's the why he prays for them, and then the next verses will be what he prays for them. So verse 3 he says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I told, you, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that you... Oh, sorry, stop there, verse 8. So this is, verses 3 through 8, is why he prays for them. And you can sum it up, um, as because God is working in them. I'm praying for you because God is working in you. He says, uh, like you've been my partners with the gospel. He says, verse 6, I'm sure he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And then he's like, well, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. And why? Because you are partakers with me of grace, meaning they have come into experience of God's grace, this undeserved, unearned favor and love. And he knows we're in this together. God has done something in our lives and he's working in us, and so he's saying, "I'm praying for you uh, because God is at work in you." And I like just verse eight. In you know, what is he feeling as he prays for them? Verse eight: uh, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So as he's 
praying for them, he's doing so with this affection. And not just his affection, but it's actually, he's a representation of Jesus' affection. What Jesus has done in Paul, now he's able to express Jesus' affection to other people that are following Jesus. And so he's saying, I'm praying for you because God's working in you, and I'm doing it with this affection uh, that comes from Jesus. And then what he prays for them, verses 9 through 11. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. So why he prays for them? I'm praying for you because of God's work in you. And if you want to sum up what he's praying for them, it would just be for God to continue his work in them, for them to continue to progress to grow, to have forward movement. And so this, right away, he starts with this theme of growth in the letter to the Philippians. And you'll see it later, chapter 2, verse 12. He says, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And just a quick note, that doesn't mean you work for your salvation. It's working out your salvation. You could maybe think of it as um, maybe putting uh, yeast or something in a, a chunk of dough, and you've got to like move it around in there. You've got to work it out into every part of that dough. It's like this thing that's happened to you that you've been saved now work it out into your life that it would start uh, permeating everything we do and so but there's still a thing there for us to do a growth thing work out your salvation and then chapter 3 the verses 11 through 14 let me just read this Um, uh, so he starts talking about i want to attain the resurrection from the dead which jesus uh died on the cross then he was resurrected from the dead. And now our well, we follow that same path, is that we die to sin, we die to the world in our life, and then we, Jesus is going to bring this new life into us, this new resurrection life, um, both spiritually but then later on physically. And so he says, uh, verse uh, 11, he says, By any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then chapter 3, verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So you can hear the growth words there of attain and obtain, uh, forgetting what lies behind, pressing on to what makes uh, to what is ahead. And he's trying to get to this place. He's like, I want to make this thing my own. Uh, but what's really good to... Notice about these two verses, uh, it's the same as what we just saw in the opening chapter. It's because God is already working in him. And so chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Verse 13, because it's God working in you before his good will and good pleasure. And then here, uh, chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, uh, he says in, chapter, in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. And so it's not this like, well, Jesus is in front of me, and somehow I have to attain that I belong to Jesus, that he'll love, love me. No, he's saying, because I already do belong to Jesus, that Jesus has made me his own, that's why I'm pressing on towards this goal, towards this prize. But as we read these, work out your salvation, press on, forget what lies behind, press toward the goal, move forward, we can be like, okay, wow. Uh, get to work, right? It feels kind of intense. It feels kind of heavy to hear these things. And if you're like me, uh, your life of growth 
has lots of ups and downs. Uh, you know, the, it's not up and to the right. Like I started here, I just get better, 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 better. But it's more like a ziggity line, and even more like a swirly line, and then kind of hopping off the chart, and then coming back onto the chart. It's like that's what my life of growth has been like. Is that we go, you know, zigs and zags and circles, one step forward, three steps back, four to the side, two down a hole. Uh, that's kind of how the life of growth works. It's like, well, I'm supposed to be pressing on, but I feel just stuck. And I make a little progress, and I move back a little bit. And so we can feel like, well, my resume, my Christian resume, doesn't look that good. Like, why should I have any confidence? Like, when I relate with God, why should I have any confidence about it? And that transitions us to another theme in Philippians, which is confidence. And you see this primarily in chapter 3, uh, verses uh, from the from the start of chapter 3 uh, to verse 11, and we had kind of read the end of it. But we tend to have our confidence with God by what we do, what we have, and what others think. I can be confident with God if I'm, if with what I do, I'm doing enough. Or what do I have? Like, God, I'm, uh, I have these things I can show you that I've given money. I have my bank statements showing you how much I've given to the church. Or what other people think of me. Other people are approving of me, and they're thinking I'm doing a good job. So this is what my confidence comes from, my resume, what I do, what I have, what other people think. But in verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 3, uh, this Paul, who's writing this letter, gives his resume. He says, he says this, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And those first words might have been a little confusing. We're not going to explain them. But then he says, And we put no confidence in the flesh, meaning in myself what I'm able to do. Put no confidence in the flesh. But then look what he says, verse 4, chapter 3. Well, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes down through his... Some of these are like, that doesn't make much sense to me. This is like his Jewish, good Jewish resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And he's saying like, look, if we're going to talk resumes, uh, I had a pretty good one going. And so if you look at it, you would think I have reason to put confidence in myself. But he says, no, that's not where it's coming from. Verse 7, he says, but whatever gain I had, whatever gain I might have thought I had from this resume, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and listen to this, verse 9, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he's saying, where does my confidence come from? Not in his resume, but his confidence in what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus has done for him, what Jesus has given to him, and what Jesus thinks of him. Instead of what I've done, what I have, what others think, it's what Jesus has done, uh, what Jesus has given, and what Jesus thinks, or what God thinks of us because of what Jesus has done. And he says, I'm found in him. And he's saying, I found a better source of confidence, not in my resume, not that's dependent on all the things I do, all the things I can stack up, all the things I have, what other people think of me. He's saying, I found a better source of it, not in myself, not putting confidence in me, but in Jesus. And so we should ask, well, okay, two themes. What's the relationship between our growth, that's the theme of Philippians, and what's the relationship between our confidence 
How do those two things interact? And I want to just give you this phrase. Actually, I'll give it to you a little later. But if we went through all of Philippians, this whole letter, just this letter, and stacked up all the things that we're supposed to be doing as like, here's my checklist of Christian to-do items in order for me to feel confident in uh, myself standing before God. So here's just a checklist from Philippians, not, not including all the other um, pages in the Bible. Uh, so let, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Don't be afraid of peer pressure to not follow Jesus. Have Christ's mindset in, for yourself. Work out your salvation. Don't grumble or fight. Press on toward the goal for the prize. Imitate godly people's example. Rejoice in the Lord always. Don't be anxious. Pray about everything. Focus on what's true and good. Be content with little and lots. Partner with people in spreading the gospel. It's a lot of stuff, right? If we just went through this book as a checklist. And so we might think, well, I can only be confident in God's love for me if I'm doing that whole checklist, if I'm doing a good job on it. Well, I got 50% done, so God's kind of like, well, kind of a wash. Not feeling, you know, don't have much love for you because they kind of canceled out. Let's see if you can do better the next day. If you get to 60%, I'll feel like I can love you. And even the Philippians, it's not like Paul's saying, like, here's your list of stuff to do, and you guys are doing all of it. If we went through the book and just found out all the things they're falling short of, uh, we see that people are complaining about each other, fighting, there's division, disunity, strife, disagreement. They're self-focused. They have agendas for other people in the, their community. They're looking down on others, prioritizing themselves and using others. And so it's like, well, here's all the things you should be doing, and here's all the ways you're not doing that. So how do we feel confident before God? Well, what he's told them about finding confidence with God is not our growth, however successful or unsuccessful it might be. But he says, looking to Jesus, we don't determine our standing or status with God based on what we do, what we have, or what other people think of us. But it's, our standing and status with God is not based on our growth. And we can kind of feel this with our lives. Well, you better be growing, you better be improving, you better be making progress, or else. That's what a lot of us live with. That's what I've lived with a lot of times. And it's not necessarily that God will kick me out of his family, but it's like, or else you're not going to be treated very kindly. I'm not going to be close to you. So it's like you need to be doing this, making progress or else. But now our confidence with God is found in Christ, not our own rightness, but in his. And I just want to go back. The reason we did this prayer in the beginning and the reason this book is what the message is on today is really for Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It was right at the beginning of that prayer, but getting the whole book's context helps us to see what it means. So Philippians 1, 6, he writes this, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And this verse is what had encouraged me in my journals and that I had come to, and just three details about it. One, who began the good work? Oh, we're told God began the good work. Who is completing it? God is completing it. And when is he going to complete it? We're told at the day of Christ Jesus, which is a reference to Jesus came once in humility and died in our place to pay for our wrongs against God, and then he was resurrected, and then he went back to his Father, and he will one day return again in glory. Came in humility, first coming, second coming will come in glory uh, to bring up to renew this earth and to call those who followed him uh, to him to be resurrected. So it's 
giving is basically a future date. So it's God's doing the work on his timeline, and his timeline is not now, it's in the future. It's a date set in the future, not now. And it's planned, he's planned for our growth to take a long time. <laughs> that he didn't say like, well, you become a Christian and I'm going to get you all the way to completion in a week or a year or five years. No, I'm, it's, this is my timeline for you. It's this long is how long not you're going to take, but I'm going to take to do this work in you, to get you where I want you. And so the question I thought to myself was, well, if God's the one who has planned for me to still be imperfect right now, why would I expect him to be angry at me for being imperfect when he's the one who's, not that he's causing me to sin or fall short or any of those things, but when I entered into relation with him, it was like, I'm going to begin changing you by my love, and it's going to take this long. And so why should I feel like he's mad at me because he's taking that long, right? Does that make sense? Like, it's his timeline, and he shouldn't be in month one of the timeline being like, you're not doing it fast enough. I'm mad at you. I'm going to be mad at you until you are complete. No, he's the one working in us. He's the one that's taking this long, and he has a lot more patience for us than we do for us a lot of times. And so we are a work in progress, yes. But you are actually God's work in progress. It's not like I'm my own work in progress and make myself good enough for God. It's no, you are God's work in progress. He's doing the work. You belong to him if you've trusted in Jesus. And so as we think about making all this personal, the question I gave you was, do you have to be growing for God to love you? Do you have to be improving, getting better, making progress, doing more, becoming a better Christian? And what if you're stuck? What if you've been stuck for a long time? I just wanted to, I haven't done this the other two weeks, but I just wanted to read you um, a section from my journal where I was, this kind of realization hit me. And I wrote Philippians 1.6 down, um, and I just felt like um, this was a good way for us to think about it. Um, so this was me um, processing, like, well, why would God be mad at me for my imperfections when actually he's not the one that put them there, but he's the one that's letting them stay there for as long as he's having them stay there. So, Jesus has fully paid for my sin, failure, imperfections, and shortcomings. All of my falling short doesn't determine how God feels about me and does not affect my status or position with him. I am safe with him and love no matter what. I'm declared righteous in Christ. There's no condemnation for me in Christ now or ever. I'm forever loved. I'm freed from trying to gain acceptance, love, or worth through perfection. I'm freed to be myself, not wearing any mass imperfections and in-progress areas uh, revealed. God loves me for who I am right now, not for who I will be. I'm not becoming a version of myself God will love more. His face is shining upon me as I am, as I am now, not as I will be. I can rest and relax in the warmth of his pleasure in me and in the glow of his delight. I'm his son, and he's happy that I am. He enjoys me as his son, as I am right now, not some more improved version of me. This version of me he loves. So that's where yeah, this kind of came home to me. And the, the big idea I want to give you um, that, was, that you might have heard in there is that you aren't becoming a version of yourself. God will love more. I think that's how we feel. Like, this version of myself is so messy, so messed up, falls short all the time. What is there to love? But we're not becoming a version of ourselves that God will love more. He loves us as he loves us fully right now, both my the version of me a year ago 
both the version of me before I wrote that journal entry, the version of me 10 years from now, God loves this version of you. And we tend to act like God loves us uh, just as we are until we're part of his family, right? It's like, of course God loved the world. There's grace for you. And then when you're like, yes, I want to be forgiven. God, I love you. I'm committing to you. And once you get into his family, okay, grace is done now. Like, you you got to earn your keep. It's like um, maybe one of those, like, uh, uh, signs at, uh, like, a car dealer that's like, hey, bankruptcy, bad credit, no problem. Come on in. Does God say everything we want to hear to get us in and to sign on? It's like, okay, now that you've signed, you better keep up with your payments or else, right? <laughs> like, you need to be good. You need to act right. You need to be going to church services. You need to be giving. You need to be praying, not swearing, not doing any bad things. And if you fall short of that, well, you're out. You got in. You don't have to pay anything to get into this family. But unless you keep up with your payments, you're out. And so be good or else. And that is not, obviously, not what God is like. We tend to act like God has grace only for people who aren't his kids. <laughs> and once we become his kids, then he becomes, you know, like a military dictator or something. And so just asking yourself, we did this in the first message, what or else do you live with? Got to shape up my life or else. Got to get this together or else. I got to break that addiction, whether it's a shopping or some sort of substance or whatever it is. I've got to do better in my job. I've got to make more money. I've got to give more money. I've got to stop watching TV so much. I've, you know, or else. We have these or else's that we live with over God. And it's really hard for us to truly believe that God could love someone as messed up and broken as we are. And so we try to not be as messed up and broken for God to love us. But really, this is the only us that there is to love, a messed up and broken us. And God is changing us, we saw in that prayer, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, that day in the future that God he is cleaning us up. It's like we've got this white t-shirt and we rolled in the dirt and it's like he's taking his time to get all the stains out of it. And then at his timing, we will be pure and blameless. He has us on a growth plan. And he knew what he was getting into. And actually, the only way for us to change is for us to be loved as messed up and broken as we are. Because unless we will receive that love right where we're at, we cannot grow beyond where we're at. So this growth formula, this is the simple growth formula from the Bible, at least in my words, would be be real, be loved, be changed. You must be real in order to be truly loved. Otherwise, there's a fake version of you that's getting loved. You need to be real, be loved by God, and that creates change. So it's be real plus be loved equals uh, be changed. And so it's be real about where you are, be loved right where you are, and be changed from where you are. And really, the only way you become truly loving is if you realize you don't have to be loving in order to be loved. Does that make sense? The only way you can become truly loving is if you realize you don't have to be loving in order to be loved. The only way you become truly generous or righteous or kind is to realize that you don't have to be generous or righteous or kind in order to be loved by God, that he loves us as sinners, as messed up, broken people and it's that love for us right where we are is what actually changes us to become loving and righteous and kind and the question is can God love you and enjoy you as messed up and broken as you are yes and it's the only kind of love that will change us and heal us and it's in our brokenness and mess 
to where God wants to meet us. When we finally lost confidence in our own resume, when we finally said, you know what, God, it's not about resume building. It's not about me impressing with what I do, what I have, what others think. But it's when we finally lost confidence in that, in our own resume to impress God or to convince Him to love us, where we have the greatest potential for growth. And so I, I tell people when they're feeling very down about the sin and guilt and shame, feeling like they fall short, that's actually a moment where we have the greatest potential of growth. Not when we're like, I've got it all together. That's like furthest from potential for growth because that person has not yet said, I fall short. When we finally say, I fall short, I can't do it, I'm in despair, that's actually where God wants to meet us in that moment of that awareness of ourselves. So it's when we finally stop trying to become a version of ourselves that God will love more. It's when we're finally letting God love the real us, that we be real, be loved, and be changed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us that is not determined by us. It's determined by you, by the your grace. It's unearned, undeserved, that you pursue us, you find us when we're lost, and you bring us home to you. Lord, would you help us to live in light of this love? Would you help us to not doubt it? Would you help us not be deceived? Would you help us to see that it's what we longed for our whole lives is to be loved by you no matter what? Would you let us experience the joy and peace of being real with you and being loved? And God, we ask that you would transform us by the love you have for us as we receive it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.